You can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. But if you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, we've been in Romans chapter 12 here a couple weeks, and we've been looking at the transforming power of the gospel. And we've seen from the beginning of Romans chapter 12 that the gospel expects sacrifice, the gospel expects service, the gospel expects a change in our thinking. And we've been looking at this little mini-series here and a, a way of thinking, a new way of thinking. And um, we saw a couple uh, weeks ago that the Bible expects us to have a, a new way of thinking about God. And then a new way of thinking about ourselves. And today we're going to be looking at a new way of thinking concerning uh, the gifts that he's given to us. Last week we looked at a new way of thinking concerning the church of fellow believers. And last week, uh, just way of review, if you weren't here, uh, we talked about the church and we talked about there's two aspects to the church. There's the universal church, which is worldwide. It encompasses everybody who's ever put their faith and trust in Christ during this time, the church age, ever since the time of Christ till now. That's what we find ourselves in. That's called the universal church. Um, that doesn't have a name other than that. It's not a Baptist church. It's not a Methodist church or whatever. It's just the universal church. It makes up the body of Christ. And then you have the local church. That's what we would consider ourselves here to be. It's kind of a, a, a subset of the universal church. And you have local churches all over the country, all over the world. And that is made up of people who are gathering together, the composition of the church, many members. We looked at this last week. And sometimes people think, well, I'll just stay in my home, my living room, and that'll be my church. No, that's not what the Bible calls the church. Uh, the Bible calls the church those who come out and meet together regularly, those who are led by biblically qualified leaders, those who teach and preach the word of God, that that's central to their meeting. They're not just getting together for social events. They're getting together to understand and study the word of God. Um, they worship together in prayer and music in the word. They practice the ordinances, that being water baptism by immersion and also communion, the Lord's table. Uh, they practice church discipline as uh, described in Matthew chapter 18. They evangelize the lost by pro faithful proclamation of the gospel. And they do life and ministry together, kind of like a big family. That's what the church is about. And just like in any family, when you have squabbles here and there, the church is no different. You know, sometimes people say, oh, I don't want to join the church because, you know, it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Well, okay. <laughs> we admit it. There. Now, let's move on. Okay. I mean, in all honesty, none of us are perfect, right? At, at certain points in our lives, we all tend to be hypocritical when it comes to our walk with Christ. We don't do that perfectly 100% of the time, I guess is what I'm saying. And not that that's an excuse, but that's just reality. And so we have to realize that, that as we come together as the body of Christ, that there's no perfect church, and if there is, don't join it because you'll mess it up. 
Because you are not perfect. The last time I checked, and neither am I or anyone else in this room or in the entire world. Because the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And so it's just like, in a way, it's kind of like you can look at it as marriage. I mean, it's kind of God's sense of humor. His way of keeping us dependent upon him. Right? He says, okay, I'm going to take two sinful people. And I'm going to put them in a union so they're one. And I want them to live out the rest of their life in perfect harmony. Yeah, right. Okay. That's just, that's not going to happen. The only way that's going to happen is what? Is through Christ. Is when you recognize that, you know what? Christ is that third person in the marriage. And that's why the New Testament warns us very clearly as believers. Do not be yoked. To those who are outside of Christ. Don't be joined to those who are not believers. Because if you do that, you're just creating a fat mess for yourself. And then you sit back and pray, oh God, help me. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, you could have prayed before you got yourself into the mess. You could have been aware of what God's word tells you to do or not to do concerning those things. And so, just like marriage should not be entered into lightly by anyone. I mean... Ask my wife, it took me a long time to get used to the idea of getting married. I mean, I didn't get married. I think I was 33 when I got married. So I was single a long time. I was set in my ways. And God kind of had to knock me upside the head and say, what are you thinking, you idiot? You need to be married. (laughs) Don't fool yourself. And then he brought along my lovely wife-to-be. And it took five, six years (laughs) for me to figure out, yeah, this is the one. You know, this is, and, I, and I'm, I'm ready. You know, I always thought I was going to be the Apostle Paul. You know, I don't need marriage. I don't need a woman. I don't, where was I lying to myself? You know, I don't know what I would do without my wife today. I mean, I really don't. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, a, a blessing to have somebody that cares for you in an unselfish manner constantly. I mean, I get up Sunday morning and my clothes are pressed and ready to go. I don't have to go into the, I mean, as a youth pastor, I was single. I used to go in the closet and just yank up whatever and put it on and go to church. And all the ladies in the church would cringe, you know, when they'd see me get up there and lead the music or whatever I was doing. Who dresses you, pastor? You need to change. And stuff wouldn't match. And it was just a disaster, a train wreck. I mean, I even had ladies in the church take me out to go shopping. I mean, that's how bad it was. I'm serious, you know. And they'd take me out and they'd say, well, what do you, I said, I don't care. Just do whatever you want. And the clerk would say, well, what do you, what kind of clothes? I don't care. Whatever they say, just get some clothes. Let's get them on and let's get out of here. You know, that's kind of my idea of shopping. And I used to put all the clothes on a hanger and I'd have the shirts and the ties and everything together because if I messed them up, it'd be game over, right? I mean, it would just go back to disaster time, even with new clothes. So they showed me what, you know, I always thought that would be a good invention. I mean, think about it. You know, you buy a suit, you buy clothes and you have a little tag on it, like A. A goes with A and it goes with tie with a little mark. I always thought, why doesn't somebody make something like that? Maybe they do. I'm just not privy to it. But that would be ingenious, you know. There you go. Maybe we should do that. But anyway, just like marriage shouldn't be entered into lightly, right? Well, neither should joining a church or coming, putting your, your attendance at a local church. There's certain things that you should consider. And it's not just, well, do they have a youth group? Do they have this? Do they have that? It's what the main thing that you should be concerned of when looking for a church. And I hope none of you are. I hope you say you found the church. But just in case, 
should be, what do they do with this book on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night? Is it the central theme of a church? It should be. Or does everything else kind of kind of fluctuate around, you know, the word of God fluctuate around everything else. So, you know, there are churches where, well, you know, the choir has, you know, uh, special songs this morning, and then we got this, and then we got that. So, pastor, you're going to get like 10 minutes at the end, so kind of keep it short. (laughs) See, that doesn't fly. That's not what the church is about. The church is about coming together first and foremost to study and to understand God's word. To fellowship with one another. You know, to spend time together. That's why usually on Sunday mornings after the service, we're not doing it this morning, obviously, because we have a baby shower, but we have a fellowship time. We have a meal over there together. And you get to sit around people maybe you don't know around a table and talk with each other and get to know them better. And we're just a small church. I get it. But even in our small church, we can grow comfortable. And I bet you there's people here in this congregation who have never talked to another person in this congregation, even though it's a small church. See, and that should not be that way. And so we looked at the idea last week of what makes this church, the composition of the church, that it's many members. And we also read from Galatians 3.28 where there's no, there's no ethnic, there's no general uh, gender or, or social economic barriers to membership in the local church. You don't stop them at the door and say, hey, you know, let me see your ID. You know, that's not it. You know, the, 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 the primary filter for someone joining the local church is do they know the Lord Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior? Are they willing to follow the Lord through baptism and, and then join together as other like-minded believers. The second thing we looked at was the cohesion of the church because in Ephesians or in uh, uh, Romans there, it talks about one body, one body. And in Ephesians chapter four, it talks about it as well. It talks about people coming together and being one. All right. That kind of gives the inclination that they, they, they join together. Some people say, well, church membership, you know, joining the church is not talked about in the New Testament. Well, it may not be talked about directly, but it's on every page throughout the book of Acts. I mean, they knew who made up their local church because they, they didn't know who made up their local church. The leaders in that church wouldn't know who they were responsible to minister to. See, that's such an important thing because it goes both ways. The commitment as members to a local church, you're committing to, to join a local church and use your gifts for the service of the people, bless you, here in this body. But as leaders, we're also committing to, you know what, we're going to serve you. We're going to minister to you in whatever fashion the Lord leads us to do that. And so it's a two-way street. And so you have this cohesion of the church. It's one body. See, we're called to protect the unity of the church. We're not called to create unity. The unity already exists. We are one in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. See, that can't be lost. We just tend to forget that. <laughs> and so practically, sometimes disunity causes issues. And that grieves the heart of God because he says, he's sitting in heaven going, don't you realize that you are one body? Why are you acting like you're not? And so we need to be reminded of that. Thirdly, we looked at the cooperation of the church because it says members do not all have the same function. Talk a little bit about that this morning. 
But, you know, when everybody doesn't do the exact same thing in the exact same way, guess what? There's potential for disunity. There's potential for division. And so what does that require us? It requires us to be cooperative with each other. You know, when you go out and you, you, you see, uh, I was going to mention this a little later on, but I mean, I'll mention it right here. You know, I was watching the Giants play a ball game yesterday and they won. Kind of a nice, nice game. It took forever, but at least they won. Not that it really matters, but anyway, they did win. Okay. And I was, I was sitting there and as I studied this week, baseball came to my mind because I thought, you know what? You could have the best pitcher in the world. I mean, he, and he could throw that ball, but if there wasn't a catcher, guess what? He's going to have problems. And if that catcher didn't have somebody to throw that ball to, if someone was stealing the base, if nobody was on second or third, then he would have problems. And when that batter hit the ball, and if that ball went out to the outfield, there's no way the pitcher could run out there and catch it by himself. He needs an outfielder. And even being said, said that, the people that play the, the, the game, there's those that coach, there's those that manage, there's people that deal with equipment, there's people that are support staff to that team, the, the, the bat boy, the bat girl, whoever they are, the, the medical staff. You know, every little detail and all that supports what should be a winning team. (laughs) But they have to operate as a team. If they don't operate as a team, it's not going to work. And that's the kind of cooperation that we need within the church. This is not anyone's church. This is Christ's church. And we are all members of it. And we should feel and shoulder the responsibility of just that. And we should be willing to serve him and serve one another as we cooperate together. We all don't need to do the same job all the time. As a matter of fact, that would be a disaster. You know, there's, there's things that get done here every week that people have no idea gets done. Because, you know what, people are willing to step up to the plate and do them. And so it's, it's so important that that cooperation is there because all members do not all have the same function. And then fourthly, we looked at the core of the church. It says one body in Christ. And we talked about the church not being an organization. It's not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, breathing organism. And, you know, it changes just like anything else changes. But the core never changes. The core should be Christ. The core should be the word of God upon which we build what he, he builds his church. And then the last thing we looked at was the commit, commitment of the church. It says individually members, individually members of one another. That's all review. That idea of one another, and we give you a list of all the different one another's, a little word picture there of all the different one another's in scripture. You know, that is so important that you realize that you're not an island. You're not. You're part of a a bigger uh, thing. You're you're part of the church. And so that, that should make you want to understand, how do I fit here? How do I serve? Not myself, but how do I serve the body of Christ? How has God gifted me? How has God equipped me? Well, that brings us to verse 6. And he says there in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And I'm going to stop there because I think when he starts listing the gifts, I'm just going to 
make that a new verse. So we'll get into all the individual gifts next week. But I, I really believe that when he says having gifts, this talks about the very first point here is that we have a the presence of gifts. But I want to kind of just in introducing this, give you a couple truths, simple truths about spiritual gifts. Something that you need to understand about spiritual gifts. First of all, the very first thing, and they're listed there in your, in your outline, I believe, yeah, is we all have a gift, at least one, as a believer. If you're saved, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, no Christian is left out of this. You may not have even one of the gifts mentioned here in Romans, but you probably do. You may not realize you do, but you probably do. But even if you don't have one of those, you you have a spiritual gift. God has given to each of us at least one. Most of us have more than one spiritual gift. Secondly, this list is not exhaustive here in Romans. When he starts to list these, these different gifts, this is not an exhaustive list. 1 Corinthians 12 lists several others. Um, some tabulate 15 gifts listed in scriptures, others about 19. And so, you know, it just depends on what your view of everything is. Um, but it's, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. God works in different ways through different people. Uh, and then thirdly, I want you to understand that gifts are administered by the Holy Spirit. He is the distributor of these gifts. They're spiritual gifts. You know, it's not, it's not really okay to, to walk around the local church and say, oh, there, there, he's Mr. Administrator. Oh, there, he's a teacher. Oh, here. You know, that's not, you know, like you're assigning a zodiac sign to him or something. That's not how that should work. All right? Because we're all different. And no, no gift is greater than the others. And so we're all gifted in a different way. And we're administered, they're administered by the Holy Spirit of God. And so you may be sitting here today and say, well, I don't like my gifts. I want, well, you don't have a right to say that. Do you know that? Because God is the one who's giving you the gifts. That would be like going to a party and everybody gets a gift and you got your gift. And you know, I want his gift. I don't want this gift. You know, that would be rude. Why? You didn't earn anything. You didn't get it. You earn it. You didn't pay for it. It was a gift. You should be appreciative of it. And so sometimes we don't realize the gifts that we have. We don't realize what God has gifted us. And finally, we're maturing in Christ, and pretty soon we realize, wow, God has gifted me in this way, or God has gifted me in that way. And so I've never heard of a believer who, the moment they become a Christian, they understand fully what, how God has gifted them exactly. It's always kind of a work in progress. And so we have to be careful that we don't pigeonhole people based on their spiritual giftedness. Because sometimes we may call it wrong. Someone may be saying, oh, I have the gift of this, and they really don't have it. They think they have it. <laughs> and we're going to be getting into that uh, in the coming weeks, how to discern that, how to know in, about your spiritual gifts. Um, but we have to be careful because you can set yourself up for false expectations real quick. You know, when you think that you're, you're gifted in a certain way or somebody's maybe even telling you you're gifted in a certain way, but using that gift just doesn't ever really work. It doesn't seem to bless others. It's just something you're holding on to. That can create a lot of problems. 
So it's, it's very important that you understand that it's God, the Holy Spirit, who gifts us. He's the one distributing these things. Well, let's look at this, the presence of gifts. Because he says there in verse 6, um, he says, having gifts. <laughs> he doesn't say if you have a gift or whatever. He just assumes that these gifts are present. And I want to look at a couple other verses. And you can turn there if you want or I can just read them for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. This is another section of Paul's writings where he talks about spiritual gifts. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware so he implies that everybody has a spiritual gift, and he's going to inform them how they should be used. And if you want to know a lot about spiritual gifts, go to 1 Corinthians 12. The whole chapter's about them. But once again, that list is not exhaustive either. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, that's another list. Or First Peter 4.10 says, Each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so he calls upon us to be a good steward of the gift that we received from him. And so what are these gifts? Uh, are these, what are these things? Well, that word gift, it, it, we get the word charismatic or, or charisma from it. It, it basically, uh, the root word means grace or favor or thanks, gratitude. That's the idea. And, and if you had to define that word, charisma, in the Greek, you could say a gift given out of goodwill. God gave us all a gift, and he did so with goodwill. Sometimes when you say somebody has a, oh, they have a charismatic personality. Well, what do you mean by that? It kind of a sense of charm, a sense of grace, all right? Or we look at um, different aspects of that word. But this was very important to the apostle Paul because this word translated gifts, it occurs 17 times in the New Testament. 16 of those times, it's by the apostle Paul. So he was really concerned with believers being equipped and being understanding in their use of these gifts. And so we call them spiritual gifts. Why do we do that? Because they're not, they're not physical talents. You know, you can't say, oh, I have the gift of singing. I mean, you may have the talent of singing. That's great. But it's not a spiritual gift um, or needlepoint or whatever, you know. Um, So they're not physical talents, but they're not also, they're not natural abilities. Some people, you know, are just gifted in a, just a, a sense, not a spiritual giftedness, but a, a gifted in when it comes to monetary things. They just know what to do with money and how to make it multiply. It's amazing. And they're just gifted that way. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's not that we're not talking about salesmanship. We're not talking about somebody who's a real good writer, creative writer, or maybe even somebody who's very sensitive you know, that's, that's not a spiritual giftedness. That's just something that's natural within that person's uh, personality. So that word spiritual gifts, remember, spiritual refers to pneuma, which has to do with the Holy Spirit. The idea where we get the, the word wind, okay? Uh, you think of a pneumatic air gun, which it has to have the air to work. You know, you can't plug it in. Or when you get pneumonia, 
Okay, same thing. It has to do with your breathing system. If you turn over to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, just to spend a couple minutes on this because it's kind of an important foundation. The Gospel of John, and we see here Nicodemus. It says in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. So he was a teacher. He was a ruler. And it said this man came to Jesus by night. John 3, 1 there. Uh, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that uh, that you do unless God is with them. Now, a couple things here. I mean, he came to Jesus by night because he didn't want to be seen by anybody else. Okay, he was he was kind of hiding. He he was a teacher and you know the the Pharisees and Jesus as you know they didn't see eye to eye all the time <laughs> to say the least. So he was one of these ruler of the Jews, but he heard enough about Jesus to thought, you know what? I'm going to meet with this man. And I, I want to kind of question him about some things. And it's interesting that he calls him teacher, rabbi. Um, And he says not only that, but he says, we know that you are from God based on everything that you've done. Uh, Incredible. And so he says in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Uh, Verse 3, sorry. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he, he answers Nicodemus's compliments with a pretty straightforward um, idea that you have to be born from above. You have to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. It's not based on your pharisaical training. It's not based on your religious identity. It's not based on how smart you are as a teacher. It's, it's only based on one thing. Has God caused you to be born again? And then Nicodemus says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, you say that's kind of a crazy question, but he's really trying to understand what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so when you look at this aspect of being born of water and of the spirit. Some say the water has the idea of a purification process. You have to be transformed in your own being to be born again. Um, And that's done by the spirit. And so he goes on here though. And he says in verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he gives this illustration. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And when you stop and you you read through this whole text, he, he continues to question him. But it's important that he talks about this wind, the Spirit, pneuma. That's what he's saying here. He's, he's speaking of something that is active, that's moving. It's not something that is just some, you know, glowing being somewhere. 
And he says, the wind blows where it wishes, even though you don't see it. And he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. This word can also mean to breathe, which has the idea of a sense of being alive, right? If you stop breathing, guess what? You're not going to live very long, right? So it's very important that you understand that, that aspect of that kind of the meaning of, of what he's talking about back in, in, in Romans here. Because these gifts are given out by the very Spirit of God. And so when you think of the Spirit of God, you think of a couple things. Um, The coming of the Spirit for the church age. When did this all happen? Now, the Trinity existed, obviously, in the Old Testament as well. It wasn't just in the New Testament. And so God is most often seen in his singularity in the Old Testament. Um, and then he takes a form of the God-man, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. And then after that, we, we see the form of the Holy Spirit. Now, they existed forever, but we're just made aware of them. And it's interesting, as you go through the book of Acts, and you can just follow along as I read a couple verses here out of the book of Acts, because it's, um, it's kind of a, a basis for this whole giftedness that God grants us with. Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven, these is when they were gathered together, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were seated. And there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled Look, with the Holy Spirit. That's that, that same word. And began to speak with other languages or other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the Spirit of God in this setting, they were gathered together for prayer. They were waiting. And it says the Spirit prompts a, a hurricane sound like a wind. Notice it wasn't, it's, you know, you see... This depicted in movies and things like that. And they were gathering all of a sudden, oh, their hair starts blowing around. No, it's not saying that. It says like the wind. Okay. And it says, and the appearance of something as of fire. It doesn't mean there was little, you know, fire things on their heads. It's just saying something as of fire. Nothing was blown away from that room. Nothing was burned up. And even more dramatic, the disciples, it says they continued sitting. They were sitting. Um, They weren't praying for this. They weren't expecting this. It's it's very important that we understand this. You know, sometimes people say, well, once you become a Christian, then you have to follow that up with a prayer for the Holy Spirit. Some people teach that once you become a Christian, you haven't really been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So now you have to pray and beg God to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A lot of charismatic teachers teach this. They call it the second blessing. That's not found in the Bible. Okay. That's not what these individuals were doing here. There's not a second blessing after salvation. All, all Christians, no matter how old or young you are in the Lord, all Christians have all the Holy Spirit they're ever going to get. That's it. Bottom line. You can beg and plead all you want. You're not getting anything more. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, 
Paul said this. I'll just remind you of this. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And then down in verse 16, a little further down, he says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So all believers have that dynamic Holy Spirit living within them. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says that we shouldn't be drunk with wine because that's wrong, but we should be continually filled with what? With the Holy Spirit. Well, does that mean that he leaves us? No, it just, that word filled means controlled. You have all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. It's just that because we're in our flesh, sometimes we don't yield to the Holy Spirit as we should. So there are times in our life, you know, I often use this illustration. You know, when you're, when you're unsaved, you're just driving down the freeway and you've got control of that car and you're, you're gripping that wheel and you're just going for broke to the gates of hell. And all of a sudden, God changes your heart. God transforms you. And all of a sudden, you realize, wow, this is not the right direction I should be going in. And God transforms you and allows you to repent. You turn that vehicle around. Literally, he turns it around. Okay? And you're going in the entire opposite direction. And guess who's in the car now with you? The Holy Spirit. You know, you hear these, see these bumper stickers. God is my co-pilot. I don't agree with that. I mean, if, if, if God is going to be in the car, you know, and, and just trust me, I do not feel comfortable with anybody driving when I'm in the car. I mean, it could be Mario Andretti and I would have an issue with it. Okay, it doesn't matter who the person is. Just kind of uh, control that way. You know, that's just me. But on the other hand... If I'm going to yield control to anybody, it's going to be God and God alone. And that's what the Bible tells us to do. And so picture yourself in the car. Now the Holy Spirit is in the car with you. And, you know, you get saved and you yield your entire life to Christ and he's driving the car. And you're in the back seat. And maybe the road gets a little bumpy. What our flesh wants to do is we start tapping the Holy Spirit. Hey, you know, let me let me take the wheel, brother. Let me take the wheel. And pretty soon we grab the Holy Spirit and we're back in control. He's still in the car, but we're not yielding control of our lives to him like we should. And see, and that's the illustration in Ephesians. He's saying, don't let someone or something outside of your body control you like alcohol or drugs or whatever else, bitterness. But be controlled, be filled. That's that word, filled. It means controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And to do that, you know what? It takes a life of obedience it takes a life of submission and it's not just oh i got saved and i yielded control and that's it no because guess what we live in this sinful body and our body is trying to climb back on the throne every second of every day because we think we know what's best when we don't and so god has to gently and kindly and lovingly say you know what it's best if i'm driving this vehicle not you And sometimes, in his grace, he lets us drive the vehicle. And where do we end up? We end up in the ditch. And guess what? He doesn't get out going, man, I'm not riding with you anymore. I'm out of here. You're on your own. No. He lovingly, compassionately helps us out of the ditch, gets us back on the road, and continues to lead and guide in our life. 
But see, that is something that we need to understand, that we need to be repeatedly filled continually with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, secondly here, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, I want you to understand that there's power when the Holy Spirit comes into your life. There's power for what I'll call prophetic utterance. There's power behind the spirit being in your life. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, Peter preached the first sermon that was ever preached in the church. And 3,000 people were saved. Amazing. In Acts chapter 4 verse 8, Peter was, it says, filled or controlled with the spirit again. And he preached a second sermon of the church age. Later in Acts 4, Peter and John were imprisoned. Upon release, they continued to preach. All right. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. We see Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 10, when he began preaching, it says, But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, they couldn't even handle it. Why? Because it was the Spirit speaking through him. It wasn't Stephen. Or in Acts chapter 8, verse 29, it says, The Spirit said to Philip, go up and talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, that's probably not a wise choice. That's not something you usually do. You know, there was marauders and and people that would attack a a chariot like that and, and plunder it. And so, you know, who knows what was on the chariot? I mean, it could have been highly guarded and that he could have been killed during this, but he was obedient. And God used that. Or in Acts chapter 10, it says the Holy Spirit led Peter to preach to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. The gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit came finally to the Gentiles. Amazing how God works through his spirit. And part of that aspect of the spirit is the idea that he uses the Holy Spirit to Allow us to speak the word of God in a way that is um, a blessing to others and a blessing to God himself. And so you have the, the coming of the spirit in the church age. You have this power of the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to speak the word of God in a fashion that you would otherwise be unable to do. And then the last thing here, you have an empowering for ministry by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, these are the first missionaries of the church era that were sent out. In Acts 13, 2, it says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work, Saul for the work to which I have called them. See, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not some you know, you know, twilight zone thing. You know, here he actually spoke. So, I mean, you know, we have to be reminded of that. Or in Acts 15, verse 28, at the Jerusalem Council, where they had these guidelines for how they were supposed to, as Jewish people, minister to Gentiles. They were trying to figure this thing out. It was brand new to them. And he says in, in 15, 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Notice, they included the Holy Spirit. Or in Acts 16, 6, when you had Paul and Timothy 
who were guided by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. It says in 16.6, they passed through uh, Phrygia and Galatia region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Wow. I mean, think about it. Think You're a missionary and you're going out and you're going to minister to people and you go to minister to people in a certain region and the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, no, I don't want you to say a word here. I mean, would that be mind-blowing? That'd be like going to the mall and, 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 and God gives you the sense somehow, you know what, an opportunity is there for you to share the gospel with somebody and the Holy Spirit says, no, keep walking. I mean, we don't think of that often because a lot of times we're not operating under the control of the Holy Spirit. We're operating under the control of the flesh. So when we take our little tracks and we go to the mall, we're thinking we got to get this thing out. We're going to grab every person and, you know, push this thing down their throat. And that's probably not the best way to do it. You know, we need to have some reliance on the spirit of God to lead us, to guide us in all these things. And that even comes down to the aspect of spiritual gifts. He needs to lead us and guide us how we use these. So Paul indicates that all Christians have them. It's a statement of fact. God's grace and goodwill has given those gifts to us. Now, just a lot of times when we we get gifts, we like to keep them, right? I mean, that's the idea of getting a gift. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Verse 7, listen to this verse. Paul writes, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What does that mean? It means, you know what? God gave you in his grace and his love these wonderful spiritual gifts. But guess what? They're not just for you. You have to use them for the common good of the body to which you're called. That's how these gifts manifest themselves out in the life of believers. I mean, I am really in awe sometimes when I think of just our small little church and the different spiritual gifts that are made up here. I mean, I talk to pastors all the time that, you know what, you know, for them to get away and to get out of town or whatever, go on vacation, it's just a hassle. You know, they got to have, find someone, pay someone to come in and do the music or, or have a, you know, guest preacher come in because nobody has gifted in their body or whatever. I don't know. And I, I mean, we're so blessed here. You know what? I mean, I could drop dead right now and this church would continue. Hopefully it would have a little bumps in the road. Maybe. I mean, I'd like to think I was missed, but you know what? God is sovereign in all that, and he will raise people up. And, you know, we don't need to live in fear of that because God is faithful to his church. But we also have to be faithful on our end to do what God has called us to do. So we see the presence of gifts. Let's look at the practice of gifts quickly here because he says here in Romans 6, he says, differ, these gifts differ according to the grace given to us. We possess these gifts. We all have at least one, but they're different. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 to 6 says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. See, just because you're gifted in a different way doesn't mean you have more of the Holy Spirit or less of the Holy Spirit. It takes just as much power of the Holy Spirit to get up here and preach a message than it does to go over and cook a wonderful meal for people after church. Do you understand that? If you're going to do it, 
in the spirit and not the flesh. So he says the same spirit, and there are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6. The gifts in the Bible, in the New Testament, are mentioned in Romans 12 here, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. Um, And there's basically many different ways to look at that. Okay, but I gave you some examples here of 14 permanent edifying gifts for the body of Christ. Let's go through these. First of all, in the area of serving. These are service, mercy, exhortation, giving. You have the kind of the area of leadership. You have leadership, administration, faith. Study, knowledge, discernment, wisdom, communication, prophecy, teaching, ministry, evangelism, pastor. And these, this isn't, like I said, this isn't a stiff thing. That, oh, I don't know if you got that right. It's just, you know, I'm trying to put some, some semblance to what the Bible speaks to. But there's true diversity here. You can't prioritize. You can't say, oh, you know, the, the teaching one is better than the giving one. Or, or the pastor one is better than the mercy one. No. That's exactly what God is trying to show us. And that's why the the Bible says they're according to the grace given to us. Because he is the one who distributes these. He is the one who has given these gifts to us. And he knows us better than anybody. I mean, there are days when I wish I could be a little more merciful. I really do. Because sometimes, you know, you're counseling people and mercy just is not one of my strong points. And so sometimes it comes off a little rough. And you walk away going, ooh, I don't know if I did the right thing in that situation. So I got to go back and say, you know, look, I love you. You know, I just want you to know that, I mean, sometimes it just, you know, these kind of things bug me. So I just got to say it. And sometimes there's not a whole lot of filter there when those things come out. Whereas someone who is gifted with the gift of mercy, I mean, they'll sit there for hours. Talking to somebody, just talking and talking. And that drives me nuts. It's like, just do something. Tell them to do something. Exhort them to do something. I mean, we've talked about the problem enough. Let's move on from the problem and let's get something done. See, and that's, that's what's, you know, in all honesty, I mean, it was, it was a wonderful time when, when John Worthington and I used to counsel together because he is very gifted in that way. He's very merciful. And I'm totally the opposite spectrum. So the, the people, a lot of times that we were counseling, really got a, a great deal because they were able to receive the mercy. And yet when they walked out of that counseling session, they had something that they needed to do to correct the behavior, to do whatever. It wasn't just, hey, we'll let you cry on our shoulder for an hour and, and that's it. And so it's important to realize that all these things work together. See, the church is not made up, beloved, of just one or two gifted people. That's not how the church operates. It takes servers. It takes givers. It takes leaders, teachers, administrators, exhorters, pastors. And they all have to work together for the common good. Now, in the future, I noticed, you know, I I listed 14 here. And I called them these, these permanent gifts. As a church, we believe that there are some gifts. There are basically 18 gifts mentioned if you count 
the gift of languages or tongues, uh, interpretation of languages or tongues, miracles and healings. Um, we believe in the New Testament, and we'll go into this probably next week a little bit, that some of these gifts were given specifically to certain individuals to establish their credibility as this thing called the church was born. Because, see, there never was a church before. Acts. There never was. And so, you know, you had Judaism, and you had that whole religious system set up, and then you had a bunch of pagan worshipers. And then all of a sudden, people were introduced to Christ. They were transformed by the Spirit of God. They were called into the body of Christ. And now they, they realize, wow, what do, what do we do now? Because it wasn't just Jews who were getting saved, but it was also who? Gentiles. And that's like oil and water. The two just don't mix. And so the New Testament had to give them teaching and give them uh, instruction on, on how these two people become one in the body of Christ. And that's what Paul did over and over. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. And he goes on and on. We're all one in the body of Christ. And with that being said, what would happen is certain individuals would go out to a, a community, say it was a, a Gentile community, and people would get saved. Well, other Jewish believers would say, well, I don't think they're really saved. They were Gentiles. So God gave some of these gifts on a temporary basis, whether it was the gifts of miracles and healings or, or languages, okay, to be shown to these people to validate, no, they have the same Holy Spirit we have. Because remember what happened to us when, when we received this? Remember when we were preaching in languages we didn't even know? And by the way, that's what that word tongue is. It's, it's language. It's always a known language. It's a dialect. It's not some gibberish that somebody says in their closet at home. It's not, it's not that. It has to be a language. How can you interpret if there's not a language? I mean, that's just what the original language says. So if you make up some language that you're going to call, you know, the voice of angels or whatever they say, because Paul at one point says, well, even if I pray in the tongues of angels, and he's using a hyperbole there. He's saying, even if this happened, right? He's not saying such a thing exists. Well, how do you know that? We'll just go through the Bible. When angels spoke in the Bible, did they need an interpretation? No. They always spoke in the language of the people they were speaking to. And they were understood perfectly. So they spoke in a known language. And so there's, you know, the church in general, you have both sides of this. You have people that call themselves cessationists, which say, you know what? Some of these miraculous things, tongues and interpretation, gifts, healings, these kind of things. It doesn't mean that God can't heal. The gift of healing was given to individuals. Is anybody here sick today? Anybody? If you were sick and I had the gift of healing, I could walk up to you and say, be healed, and you'd, get, you'd be healed. That's what the gift of healing is. You don't have to pay me nothing. You don't have to do anything else. The gift of healing was just that in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it was so prevalent in the time of Christ that there were whole communities that were healed. Why do you think they were all flocking to Jesus? They wanted to get healed. That was the main reason. And a lot of them did. Most of them did. See, it's not that God doesn't heal. When someone's sick, we pray that God would heal them. I mean, we desire that. But sometimes that's not the case. 
Sometimes God may want for his own divine purpose someone to be sick. We may not understand that. But you know what? We're not God. And so you have to be very careful when we look at some of these these certain gifts. And we're going to get into that probably next week and, and following. But I want to leave you with this, the pursuit of the gifts. Because he says here at the end, let us use them. Let us use them. Notice he doesn't say, let me use mine. He says, let us use them. All right? As a church, we're all gifted in a variety of ways. We all, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, we have a spiritual gift. My question, are you using it for his glory? In 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says, pursue love yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. And that word is in the imperative. In other words, this is something you have to do if you're a Christian. This is not optional. Or 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So also, you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And this is one of the indicators that some of these gifts were temporary. Because a lot of the people in the Corinthian church wanted the supernatural. They wanted the sign and wonder gifts. They wanted to do all this fancy stuff in front of everybody. And Paul had to tell them, no, it's not about that. It's not about, you know, wooing the crowd. It's about, are you edifying people? Are you, are you building people up in the relationship with Christ? Or 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. See, this is Paul writing to Timothy saying, you know what? You have a spiritual gift. And that word, do not neglect, is something you better ever not ever do this. That's how strong it is. And so you can kind of sense how important it is, first of all, to know what your spiritual gift is, and then to put it to work for the service of the body and for Christ's glory. Or in 1 Peter 4.10, as each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. And then Ephesians 4, of course, it explains the different operation of the different gifts. So when you stop and you think about spiritual gifts, the pursuit of them is something that is not an option for us as believers. Uh, It's just not. You know, and I would challenge you this week to maybe you can read through uh, Matthew 25. And he gives some parables there talking about um, the parable of the talents. And sometimes we're not a good steward of the gifts that God has given to us. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit next week. But I, I pray that as believers here this morning that you desire to use your gifts for God and for Christ's glory here in this, this body. And you know what? If you don't know what your spiritual gift is or you don't have a clue, come and talk to one of us. We have a lot of different tools to help you in that way. But you know what? The best, the best practice is just start getting involved. Just start doing something. It's hard to steer a car that's not moving. But once it's moving, man, you can steer that thing pretty easily. All right. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and his desire for us to know and understand what our gifts are and how to employ them. And Lord, I pray that in the coming weeks as we look at these individual gifts and and, and Lord, how this all works out, Lord, we just trust you. And we pray that we would continue to uh, serve you and serve one another for your glory here in this place. I pray for anybody who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. 
Um, Lord, the, the, the Bible is not um, vague about this. It says you must be born again. You have to come to the end of yourself, your willingness to renounce your sin and to embrace God and his sacrifice through Christ that pays for your sin. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in you, I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, help me out of this situation I'm in. And Father, make me the kind of person that you desire me to be. Cause me to turn from my sin and turn to the Savior. That's a prayer that God will answer. Lord, we do pray for the women as they meet afterwards in the fellowship hall for this, this baby shower. Lord, that you would just bless them, bless all that are in attendance. And Father, once again, we just uh, thank you for this uh, baby Sophia that's come in to this world. And pray that you would give Hector and Marie uh, just an ability beyond their own to raise her up in the ways of the Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.